This is SciBite, episode 108, for November 5th, 2013. everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at a strange exoplanet, SpaceX rocket testing, an Australian lost world, simulating dinosaur walks, viewer feedback about human regeneration, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Wow, that does sound like quite a bit of science, so we should probably kick it off with the news. All right, Heather, what is our first story today? Our first story is, I saw a number of news places that were like, we have found another new Earth. Sweet. Earth, giant, <laughs> echoing blazing Earth, fireworks Earth. no why do they always say that why uh, do they always say it it's gotta be this the clicks is, yeah just because it's earth in density or size roughly they decide mm-hmm. that everything is an earth it is really 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 hot place you don't want to be there wow this is okay so it's just a little over 1.2 times the size of earth it's made of iron and rock you know, so it's about the same density, about the same size-ish, and it is orbiting in a mightily fast eight and a half hours. Oh. This is miles away from the star. So Oh, this is miles? Where, yeah. <laughs> no, this is not like long, long distances. It is really, really close to the star. So you got there, an eight-hour day, and it's pretty much on fire. Yes, exactly almost on fire. Just shy of on fire. There are two different research themes that said, yes, we can confirm the mass and the density. You know, because generally with star with planets this small, um, in planets in general, you get the mass and the density by watching the star kind of wobble just a little bit as the planet is whipping around the star. It's putting just barely amount of gravitational pull on the star itself. But generally that requires, you know, a large planet. Get that with the small planets generally, but this one is so close that they could hmm. actually get that. So they're like, okay, so we've actually got that, and they really liked the fact that it was two different people because it is just incredibly strange that it is here. So not only is it that tiny and really close, but it is at the point. So when the star was younger, as has shrunk down as it has gotten older. Now, when it was younger, the planet would have been inside the star. Oh. And it's not a planet that could have like st- formed farther away and, you know, come into a smaller orbit. Mm-hmm. Because if it had come into a smaller orbit, it would dive straight into the star itself. It couldn't have like made some braking maneuver. Right. Yeah. It, would have st- it wouldn't have stopped, right? It would have just kept going. Yeah. It's not going to, you know, slide out. So it's slowly, it's just- is it slowly spinning outward? No, it is going to come into the star. It, is, it oh, will oh, okay. smash milk right into the star. It's Ooh. not going to fly away. It Ooh. is definitely This is starting to sound worse and worse. 
I'm not going to escape the fact of the star, but it is, it is one of those cases where it's like, okay, we think we have new rules about how planets form and what they do and what the systems are. Nope. And then a planet like this comes along and it's completely what in the world? We have very few ideas about how in the world it could have been. I mean, there are some people that say, you know, random out of the blue exotic possibility. Maybe it was, you know, some core of a, a gas giant's planet that sort of just got stripped away by the sun, by that star. But it's, you know, it's uh, solar, it's uh, stellar wind would have blown away mm. all the mm-hmm. the planet. And right. And just left it the core. Its, yeah. yeah, just left its tiny little core. Yeah. Because they're trying to figure out ways that this would happen because it obviously is not going to be a planet that was sitting inside a star at one point. It's not It's not one that got yanked down into a lower orbit because then it would just want to crash into the star itself. So this is another one of those times where looking at it going, all right, we're going to take a wild guess on this one huh. and crumple up the old, uh, the old cheat sheets on plant, how planets form and try to figure out a new, a new way to approach these. Wow. A rule breaker. Oh yeah, we keep getting those every once in a while. Yeah, and this is another. This was another. So, the, did you say this was another Kepler find? Yes, it is. It was found inside the Kepler data. Ah, uh, okay. It's another data in the data. They got a planet in the data. Heather, yep. a big one. There's, you know, Kepler mission has you know sadly ended, but there is so much of a backlog of data that it's gonna that planets like this are gonna keep continuing out from Kepler. Yeah. Right. You know, so we'll get. You know, discoveries for a while, for a long while still. Well, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, very cool. Okay, any other thoughts on that story? No, I just wish they would stop calling everything New Earth. Yeah, well, it gives you something to mention on the show. Like, people can come here and they get the facts, Heather. They get the facts. That's true. Nothing but the facts, please. Nothing but the science, as it were. Yes. Uh, All right, Heather. Well, before we move on to our next story, I wanted to just... Take a moment and let folks know how they can support the SciBite Show and the Jupiter Broadcasting Network by getting themselves something. You know that, right? Everybody knows that, right? If you go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, go now, friends. Go now. Go one, go all. And scroll down to the very bottom of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. You'll see links down there for Amazon, for eBay, for Netflix, for Newegg, for ThinkGeek, for Best Buy, for Audible, Code School. Those all are our affiliate links. If you click those bad memojamas before you shop at any of those sites, a portion of your shopping session is contributed to the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. Now, this doesn't cost you anything more. You can grab Chrome and Firefox open source extensions to just take care of that automatically. And Heather has a great pick this week. Just came out on Blu-ray and DVD, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. The extended edition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also uh, just came out this week, I think, or maybe it's next week, is uh, Man of Steel, the new Superman movie, and yep. uh, Monsters University, which is great. Uh, watch oh, that right. with the kids. And also a new Despicable Me too. Oh, um, yes. Another good kid movie. But yeah, uh, The Hobbit. This is not one I've seen, so I think I'll be picking this Blu- Blu-ray up. Now, we'll have this linked in the show notes. So if you grab this or if you click through that link and grab anything else then a portion of your purchase will be contributed to the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. We've got a big 2014 coming up, lots of big moves and stuff like that, so it's a great way to support the network as we get ready for that kind of stuff. And and as those holidays do approach, I know, trust me, I know, but as those holidays do approach, well, we do appreciate if you keep those links and those browser extensions in your thoughts, you know, maybe loaded on your browser, you know, sort of supercharge your browser to support Jupiter Broadcasting. All right, Heather, well, with that all done, Let's move on to the news bite. 
right. So what are we uh, biting in the news? All righty. SpaceX, the private industry that has delivered stuff to the space station, they're not going to be renting to some t- test space from NASA to do some rocket test engine, mm. engine testing. Okay. So currently they do most, most of their rocket testing in Texas. Now they've got much larger rocket engines with the... Uh, that they need to test, and they're going to use the E2 test stands at uh, Stennis in Mississippi, I believe. So, they're, it's just some, they haven't necessarily given a whole bunch of details about what, they're calling it the Raptor engine, what it is, specific dev, uh, development plans, but you can kind of get bits and pieces of news here and there, and I can kind of look around in between going, okay, I know these types of engines they're probably going to be used for some sort of deep space mission, maybe mm. to Mars mm. or to, you know, another planet. Um, so, in you know, they've been talked to, and actually the CEO of SpaceX has actually mentioned this type of engine when talking about a Mars Mars mission. So, mm. Mm. so these, mich- these uh, the rock- Raptor rocket engine. So mm. we know there are some high-performance upper-stage launch vehicle. So, you know, you have the the base stage of a ro- first stage of a rocket gets it up, you know, a good portion into the orb into orbit or you know, into orbit. And then the upper stage will finish getting into orbit and start shooting it off into space in the proper direction. Okay. So these are kind of designed to produ- produce um large amounts of thrust even in vacuum. So that's why they would be Easy for a, rock, a Mars mission, and they are method liquid oxygen or LOX. So liquid oxygen, and these, I've dealt with these type of engines before on a very small scale. Definitely not being tested on some giant, you know, <laughs> rig that NASA has. Yeah, mine is in a small bunker. Hmm, what are you doing? Are these, are these like on a, on a backpack that you um, could wear, and and then of course fly at unbelievable speeds? I wouldn't really want to. The types of things we do is very similar. It's because they can work in vacuum or in, you know, low atmosphere. So some of the projects I've done are, you know, you know, small satellite thrusters or things on Mars. So you want to be able to do them in a low oxygen, no oxygen type of atmosphere. So this is kind of a good, reliable type of engine. Very good. All right, Heather. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to have the bang. Hey, guys, come on in. Yeah, just set up right oh, yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, could you play the news bite? No, no. Two bite news. Two bite news. Jeez, they always get this messed up. Okay. Here we go. Good job, guys. All right. See you later. There you go. Beers in the hallway. All right. Heather, so what are we <laughs> I think talk- they drink before. <laughs> they totally do. That's how they that's how they get in their zone. So what are we okay. talking about in the two byte news? Alrighty. There is a nice little lead article saying there's an Australian lost world found. Nice. I heard about this actually. Yeah, so there was an expedition to there's a really remote part of northern Australia, and they found three new vertebrate species that we been totally isolated from our knowledge or humans for millions of years. So there was uh, a James Cook University and National Geographic film crew. They had to be dropped into a helicopter onto the rugged, that's called the Cape Melville Routen Range. And I've seen pictures. I had to like search. It is literally like 
like little mountains of giant boulders. It's like, you know, you have a kid that's like piling rocks up to make a mountain and that's what they think a mountain is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make, like, expand that to really, really big so that you are the size of like a quarter of one of those rocks. <laughs> it's really weird terrain. And they have found, so it's really impossible range almost to yeah to ter- ter- to traverse. So that's why, you know, giant black granite boulders, size of cars and houses. You got to be tough. Not, you got to be tough to live yeah, there. So that's why they got flown in by a helicopter and they were out there. They're going to go back to uh, search for more species, in fact, because it kind of keyed them off to, hey, there's some stuff here. They found a uh, gecko, a gold-colored skink. That's another type of lizard. A uh, brown-spotted yellow boulder-dwelling frog. Oh. So, you know, the, the gecko is this really huge-eyed, long, slender thing. Very different from all of its uh, similar gecko relatives. Kind of adorable. Now, the, in its own little way. In a way, in so, like, I'm going to eat your eyeballs kind of way. I don't know if it's that kind of. Uh-huh. The the most interesting one that I found was the frog. Yeah. Because during the dry season, there is, they need water to make their eggs. And this is a giant boulder field. It's not necessarily a lot of water hanging around. And during the dry season, it's, if they crawl in underneath all the rocks, it's kind of a cooler, moist environment. And so the tadpoles actually develop into, within the egg and make fully formed frogs in the absence of water, actually. Wow. So they kind of become more, um, form more frog-like in their little egg. And then they are completely, you know, they come out and they're little frogs and none of it has to do with water. They just hang out where it's cool and moist. That is a pretty cool frog. That is so yeah, it's neat. one of these where... Very specific little creatures for their crazy little environments are what makes them happy. And so since they found these larger ones, they're definitely going to go back and be like, all right, there's probably some smaller ones like snails and spiders and maybe even little, maybe even little mammals. So it's kind of one of those things where they got a taste of it and they're like, wait a minute, we found a couple new things with just this one trip. We got to go back. Very cool. Now uh, for you audio listeners, uh, Heather's got some uh, links in the show notes with good pictures like... These things are pretty wild looking, um, but oh, yeah. you know, uh, I like that frog. I, that, that that lizard, I think, is looking kind of scary. But that frog. Now, of course, if a lizard's going to bother me, then I think our next story. Actually, this next story sounds like something I need to pay attention to because I feel like my son would ask me this kind of question, and that is, "Dad, how do dinosaurs walk?" Right, and researchers have now managed to make another computer model to sort of recreate the walking and movement running movements of this specific dinosaur, the Argentinosaurus. Now, this is one of the largest dinosaurs, I mean, one of the largest creatures that have ever walked the Earth. So this is one that lived between 97 and 94 million years ago during what they call the late Cretaceous period. And now, not many of the bones of this type, of, of this specific dinosaur, have actually been recovered. So oftentimes, You'll, you'll see them and they'll be like, oh, this is, you know, this type of dinosaur. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they found a full skeleton. Now, they know of skeletons of, you know, 
brachiosauruses or other more common dinosaurs of that nature. So they have full skeletons there. And then they find this type of dinosaur that they can tell that it is similar. And so they'll, you know, they have like a femur, or they have some neck vertebrae or a rib. And so from there, they're able to go, okay, this femur is four times as big, which kind of gives them uh, math to sort of calculate up to see how much bigger it would be. Mm. And so then they're, what they're able to do to sort of make these simulations is they, they go around and they take, they laser scan the bones. Essentially, this simulation is using pretty much like 30,000 desktop computers all squashed together. Awesome. <laughs> so they, you know, laser scan all, all the bones. And from that, they're able to kind of see the where of where the muscles were, you know, kind of seeing how the bones were put together. Yeah. And from this, you know that they weighed about 80 tons. Oh, so you can say, all right, here's the weight. Here's how the bones were put together. We can kind of tell how some of the muscle musculature was there. Therefore, there are only so many ways that this amount of mass with this kind of muscles can move successfully. Mm. So they think it moved about a very fast running pace. It would have been like five miles an hour for it, which is pretty much a very leisurely pace for us humans. And that's how. That's how fast they went. And that was pretty much it. I guess when you're There's, as big as they are, you don't really have to run from much. Yeah. There was <laughs> a uh, video in the uh, show notes and it shows, you know, how they found, they found some small skeletons, like infant skeletons and how they had already had like little tiny teeth. Yeah. And one of the videos I was sad to watch because the first part of it is like a T-Rex, you know, like stomping around and being like, nom. Oh, no, and then, no, like, that's, you don't want that part. You want to see the cute little zooms, kid. And then it zooms out, and the and the you could see like the full Argentinosaurus like standing there, towering massively over the of uh, the T Rex, and then kind of stumbles back a few steps, and then turns and runs. Yeah, I bet. I would Just to too. kind of give you this, you know, aspect. If you know, you always think of the T Rex as this giant right. monster, right? And then this thing just made it look like a tiny little puppy, and it's like, okay, I'm gone. Gosh, one of these days, uh, maybe we'll have like a park somewhere where they've recreated dinosaur life and we can visit it for our own entertainment and it will be wonderful. What do you think? Heather? Yeah, cause, because nothing could go wrong. <laughs> nothing could ever go wrong as long <laughs> as you got a Unix system. Uh, hey, Heather, speaking of Unix systems, the Sidebyte 2000 is flashing at me. And uh -huh. this button, now this particular button is either uh -oh. incoming communications or uh -huh. It'll create a quantum rift between my house and your house, destroying all matter between our two locations. I'm not sure which one, so let's give a it a rip. Oh, jeez. Okay. It's incoming communications. We didn't destroy a good portion of the United States. Move that, the viewer communication button far away from everything else that's going the to... The Sidebyte 2000 has so many buttons, I just, I get, I, I lose track, Heather. I lose track. So uh, what did we get? All right, we got uh, a Twitter feed from Michael Fallon showing me a kind of pointing out a story about uh, human regeneration of parts. Gross. Uh, <laughs> gross. <laughs> now, the theory is that there's a lot of these stories kind of going on where they're looking at different creatures, like uh, obviously salamanders that can pretty much regrow their whole arm if it's, you know, they lose it before. Well, uh, didn't we see a story joints. a while ago or two about uh, a mouse that grew a human ear? Wasn't that a yeah. thing? Yeah. Okay. 
well, they attach them on there, you know, yeah. so you can yeah. kind of right. build it up. Yeah. And you actually see young mice are able to regenerate toes. They've actually had a couple of instances where young kids, if they lose like the end of their fingertip, will regrow it. Gross. Yeah, gross. I like, I almost lost my end of a finger, so I'm happy. I'm like, oh. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. finger, you stuck with me. But this is the kind of thing where they're kind of looking at, all right, we see these kind of creatures and what they're doing in, you know, in their natural habitat. So what can we do to possibly tweak it and make it work for humans? Mm. Now, about a decade ago, they saw that uh, zebrafish have the ability to uh, repair badly damaged hearts uh, by using a specific protein in the regenerative process. Uh, Angela from the chat room, uh, of course, they're talking about stem cells. There are groups that are looking into stem cell. This specific group is, and others like it, are looking at the genetics and the genes and the things in the in the genetic genetics to say, all right, what can we do to to possibly be able to inject? Like, if you have you know a damaged heart, what is a different way to be able to go in there and say, all right, you know, let's regenerate some of that, or you've lost um, you know a finger, or you know maybe even an arm, or things like that. Now they're saying. Maybe in the next couple of decades, we might be able to get a finger or a toe or maybe even heart, you know, heart. It's kind of one of these things where they're like, you know, not so long ago, we would have said, wow, that would be like 50 years in the future. And then mm. kind of as time goes on, they're like, huh, the day we think it might come is getting closer to us. Wow. So obviously they're like really cautious. Most of these groups are being like, yeah. We're really not ready, so don't don't come calling to us <laughs> quite yet. All right. But they've had a couple of milestones that they've hit that can actually turn uh, human scar tissue into ultra conductive tissue, so kind of making it normal tissue and very happy. So they're kind of working at these ways, saying, all right, what animals can we look at in nature and what can we do to possibly bring that in a safe way? Because that's the other hurdle point that a lot of these groups go uh somebody from the chat room is like zombie apocalypse so yeah we don't want to let loose something in humanity you're like all right how do we do this safely without dooming us in some other way right Not good point silly that crazy but you don't want to when it comes to pulling things into the human sector you really have to be very carefully and look at there's a lot of morality that involved so it kind of it's very, very tricky. Yeah, yeah. That's a line they'll walk for a while, and there'll probably be debates on it all around as it, yeah. as it gets closer and more real. We're not really to the point where we have to worry about it too much yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But uh, we will at some point. But it's curious. It's interesting to watch, and I'm curious to see where it goes because oh, yeah. uh, I think of it too. Is, um, I think of it a lot from. Um, I, I, this is probably just way out there. We almost we need the time machine to go forward for this. But I love the idea of. I get in a car accident or a motorcycle accident or a fire and part of my face is burned off or, you know, I lose a part of my body. I'd love to be able to just grow, have them take, you know, samples from me and grow me new face skin, right? Instead of having to graft it from my butt or wherever they, but the back of my leg or wherever they take it. Like in the case of my, in my grandpa's case, they ended up taking, and my dad too, uh, both of them had some accidents where they had to take skin from other parts of their body and then sort of graft it onto the other spot. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, and that makes two injuries, right? Because the spot yeah. where they remove skin also has been damaged and has to heal. So it's it's mm-hmm. a real monster for the uh, for the healing process. Yeah, I have a distant, sort of distant relative who, as a kid, got burned, and so he was kind of having to go through that whole process of skin grafting and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I've known people with you know am- amputations of various you know degrees and saying, hey, it'd be really nice if they could get. If not, you know, a whole limb, a little bit more of a limb, because especially in today's world where you have the um, prosthetics, there are some prosthetics that are getting more and more advanced. But the more, say, in the case of an arm, if you have a little bit, um, you know, more forearm or something, then you can get much more control. So the combination of the two can get you there. So as we continue on towards that, Mm -hmm. like completion of that. Right. All right, Heather. Well, with that filed, should we move on to the Curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on All right. I feel like we should visit Cooperstown uh, this week, Heather. What's um, Curiosity up to? Alrighty. The Curiosity rover has actually finished its complete first two-day autonomous drive. I was actually back on October the 28th. So it kind of, they laid it out and said, all right, get to point B. And so it looked around and it chose a safe route. You know, they had some waypoints that it wanted to go through. So it used, you know, we talked about it uh, before a couple of weeks ago, where it was using stereoscopic images and kind of tracking all sorts of different rocks and it moves forward mm-hmm. and then it sees where the rocks are. So it's like, okay, I know I'm moving this way and I know exactly what's going on. And so... Now I remember why you're going to Cooperstown, because that is where the location that they have called it. Cooperstown. I like it. It sounds yes. like it sounds like a place where uh, right now it's an up and coming spot, but they hope that after enough people come into the town, it's going to be a good tourist attraction. Sure. <laughs> no, it, it by itself drove like 260 some odd feet, 80 meters. So it was a bit of a drive, actually. I was quite surprised that they actually were able to go that far. And so they're, you know, heading there for, you know, some, looks like there's some uh, targets for maybe examination with the instruments on the rover's arm again. Well, they're going to head there, stop, you know, test out some things with the arm, do some science. Now, this is another one of those, you know, kind of waypoints on the way to Mount Sharp. They're actually going to be, they are now a third of the way on their route to the mountain. There is their goal. This is a nice long road trip. But they are a third of the way along, and they're going to have, to have some more science coming soon. So cool. this week, their kind of big plan is to, they're going to uh, get a new version of the uh, software. So they're going to get an upgrade. Mm, nice. Third upgrade since uh, they're landing. And hopefully they're going to be able to, and that's going to give them more ability to kind of store information overnight. And sort of this, uh, along the same route of the autonomous driving. So they can drive and then kind of sleep overnight. And then be able to resume that driving the next day. So it's kind of long road trip. They want them to be able to stop for the night, take a quick nap, you know, bed down at a, wherever they are at the hotel, and then wake up the next morning and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so, awesome. and also it'll kind of increase their capabilities of being able to use the arm uh, while on their slope, you know, an inclined plane. So it'll be much more useful, especially when they get to the mountain itself and they start climbing up. So it's kind of, all these things where it's kind of up, upgrading the software as, as they can and seeing, hey, this is actually going to be useful if we do this. 
and then do that. So it's it's incremental steps, but it's always interesting when they can be like, yep, we're uploading completely new software. Yeah, I mean, anytime you update the operating system on your uh, on your uh, robot that has lasers and reactors and science laboratories as it's driving across an alien world um, from another planet, mm-hmm. is maybe slightly above your average software up- update. Of course, this is always you know backed up, so they have the two drive. Right, the two, the two computer systems, yeah. Yep, so they upload to one. And so that way, if something goes wrong, they can flip back. Like, nope, heading back, undoing that update. <laughs> Man, I should have back. two computers. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Roll back to the old update. Like, nope. <laughs> totally joking. Well, Heather, uh, good news. Uh, you you, you, you uh, gave me a little heads up. You said, charge up the time machine this week because we're going yes. way back. So yes. I plugged it in. I added gas and I even put bottled water in there in case okay, we have good. that weird quantum slip where it actually takes us a thousand years. To, uh, anyways, okay. I don't want to get into the details. So let's step no. in. Close the door. Let's go. Ooh, little bumpy. Oh, wow. I felt that one. Okay. I'm actually holding onto my chair. Oh, yeah. I'm bouncing around. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this uh, this week, the time machine takes us to 441 years ago, November 11th, 1572. Heather, what happened this week in science? Tycho's supernova. A Danish astronomer, Tycho Brahe, began observations of a supernova that was discovered in the constellation of Cassiopeia. Talked about it a few times here. It's a giant W-shaped. Now, this is... Um, not the first supernova seen in you know history of recorded history. He wasn't even necessarily the first one who saw it. That was um, Wolfgang Schuler uh, Winneberg. Anyway, two weeks before oh. he actually saw this. Now, what's specific about this and why it is note- noteworthy is because he started these op- specific observations, and they were very accurate measurements of exactly where it was. Now, before this, there was kind of like, they're the stars. They, Im- they are immutable. They are a painted canvas above our heads that doesn't really change. Oh, really? Now, this type of incident where there's a supernova and suddenly there is a very bright star. It was the brightest star in the sky for two weeks. It was visible in the daytime. Now, you could actually see it in the sky for uh, 16 months, almost you know a year, year and a half. So it was very visible. For over a year, you'd actually see it in the daytime for two weeks, and so this is very one of those things where it was, wow, something definitely changed in the sky, and so his detailed uh, notes about what was going on, about how bright it was, it sort of innovated that type of thing where everyone started being okay. He put out this book, you know, and it it actually named it uh, De Nova Stella, which is where the word nova for supernova came from that book it was sort of that type of meticulous work sort of started this whole new period in astronomy going okay now we can't just scribble down roughly what it looks like we really have to take you know specific measurements of where this is what it is what does it look like and so kind of a big kind of turning point in that sense 1572 how about that huh wow yep Wow, talk about a science that has been being refined for a long time. Oh, yeah. Any other thoughts on that one? Nope. All right, then let me recalibrate the Sci-Fi 2000, just so that way we can look up into the sky this week. That's right. On Wednesday, November the 6th, in the evening, you'll see Venus and the crescent moon. They'll be 
close by each other in the southwestern sky. On Saturday, November the 9th, we actually have the official first quarter moon. You can see that in the southwest. In general, this week, we've got Venus hanging about about dusk. It's going to be in the southwest, uh, you know, near the moon. And going moving towards the east to northeast is when it's going to set. Mm. It's going to be near the stars Castor and Pollux in the constellation of Gemini. Actually, in the show notes, there's kind of a picture to give you a better idea of what that layout might look like. Um, Mars is going to be. Oh yes, Mars is going to be rising about one to two a.m. Standard Time. This is where the tricky things are. Where I'm going to give you the the estimates, and you have to remember daylight savings versus standard. Um, but 1 to 2 a.m. standard for Mars. It's going to be moving east. It's actually going to be moving opposite of the stars. So if you're watching sort of over the long time at night, then the stars are going to be going one way, and Mars is actually going to the opposite direction. It is now, we've been talking for a number of weeks about how it has been near the star, the blue-white star Regulus, kind of seeing the blue-white, I mean the red and white difference between them. They're actually moving farther and farther apart from now each other now. But they are going to be in the high southern sky by about dawn, still. The comet Ison, still just before dawn, below Mars, still only a telescopic object. We'll keep watching about when that'll start being visible to the uh, human mm. eye. Okay. And Jupiter, Hello. another good planet. 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, standard time. It's going to be rising in the north-northeast and moving high to the southern sky by dawn. So it's kind of a morning object now. You had to catch it right before the sun blasted out. Oh, I'll keep that in mind. You know, in fact, I don't have to keep it in mind because Heather has all of this laid out in the show. Let's go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Look for episode 108 of the Sci-Bi program. And specifically, the stuff up in the sky, she's got all that listed towards the bottom of the show notes. But she's got references to everything. She talked about including some great visuals, pictures, and uh, multiple resource, uh, multiple sources and resources, I guess you could say. Heather, anything else we want to cover this week? Not that I can think of. Awesome. Well, uh, listen, everybody, we'd love to hear from you. And you can do that by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, clicking the contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, choosing SciBite, and then relaying your message via our email monkeys. Heather, thank you for the great show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>